please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we need you. Lord, you are the creator of life. You are the one who gives us breath, and you sustain life. Father, without you, we would be nothing, literally. And it is you, God, who sent your son to die for us, that though we were sinners, though we were your enemies, you have reconciled us to you so that we may have a relationship and dwell with you forever. Father, we praise you and thank you for that. Lord, I ask now that you bless the word as we look into 1 Peter. Father, please give me your words. Give me the boldness to speak your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter 3. Now, last week I promised that I would return with a, a follow-up to last week's sermon. I didn't think it would be quite so soon, but God obviously had a different plan. Scott is away again this week and asked if I'd uh, preach again, and I was all too happy to do so uh, because I wanted to continue where I'd left off. So here I am to make good on that promise to you. Now, by way of a, a quick review, last week we looked at 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17, in a sermon that was titled, Christ, Our Hope in a Time of Despair. And we looked at Peter's encouragement to those who were suffering and would suffer for the sake of Christ. We saw how the saints of the first century church faced much the same attitude in society as we are today facing. Christians were thought to be different because they separated themselves from society. This was due to the prevalence of paganism that permeated that society and the idolatry, but it was also due to the immoral behavior that was common in the day. And Peter gave us encouragement and direction for how to respond when society shows its disdain for Christians. And I divided that passage into four points. The first point was, what harm shall befall us? And it was based on 1 Peter 3, 13 to 14. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good. We consider the fact that generally people will not look down on others for doing what they consider to be good deeds, such as helping the homeless or protecting the defenseless. To the contrary though, people, even those who deny God's very existence, separate good from some forms of evil and despise those who prey on the weak or exploit the disadvantage. Now I say some forms of evil because they nonetheless practice other forms of evil. We see that out there. See, the truth of God is not in their hearts and they deny his good commands. But still Peter dismissed any thought that you will never be harmed if you pursue righteousness. In verse 14 he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed, have no fear of them nor be troubled. And you'll recall that Jesus told us that we would be persecuted for following him and called us to a life of suffering on his behalf. We considered Paul who suffered greatly for Christ. And we noted that Peter himself also suffered and that he rejoiced that he was counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Peter writes that we are blessed if we suffer and not to fear nor be troubled. This command came from Isaiah 8. And Jesus also told his disciples not to be troubled. Now the next point was entitled, how shall we, or I'm sorry, what honor shall we give? 
And this came from the first part of verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. And remember the main verb in that was to sanctify. It means to sanctify Christ. And sanctify means to set apart or consecrate. It also means giving Christ the primary place of worship, adoration, and exaltation. And the Bible has many references to how we sanctify Christ in our hearts, and I suggested that a good summation was Paul's declaration in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ. And when our lives are centered on Christ, we are able to respond appropriately to the trials and to the suffering that we're sure to endure. And the third part, the third point that I made was what hope shall we share? And this came from the middle of verse 15. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And we looked at what it meant to be prepared. We, we said to study the Bible, to rehearse, to preach the gospel to yourself, to train, to memorize scripture, and to practice, to meditate on what you've learned, and to share this with others. We considered what our hope is. Our hope is the gospel. Our hope is Jesus Christ. Our hope is the promise of God through Christ. We are to be prepared to give a reason for this hope to anyone who asks. And finally, point four was called, what behavior shall we display? And this came from 1 Peter 3, 15, see the latter part of the verse through verse 17. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And we talked about the way we should give a defense, the behavior. And we said not with angry words, not with name-calling, not condemning the sinner, but rather commending the Savior. Well, this morning, as I promised, I want to take you even closer to the latter part of 1 Peter 3.15. That's where we're going to focus on right now. So let me read that verse again. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. You see, here we're talking about apologetics, the defense of the gospel. And that word defense is, as we said, apologia. So what I'd like to do this morning is to break this concept down. And please forgive me, the, the police officer in me comes out, and I always ask the questions, who, what, when, where, why, and how? And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the who, what, when, where, why, and how, although not in that particular order. But that's what I want to do to examine what it means to give a defense. So my first point is, what shall be our defense? What shall be our defense? Now, quite simply put, our hope and our defense is the gospel. Our hope and our defense is the gospel. You know from, from past sermons that the word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion which means good news. It's used some 75 times in the New Testament, mostly by Paul. And it has a very specific meaning to that word. It means a specific message. 
It does not mean the Bible or the books of the Bible. It means the gospel, the good news of Christ. That is what euangelion means. Now, when used in the Bible, the word euangelion always refers to oral communications. It doesn't refer to writings. It doesn't refer to documentation. It refers to oral communications, the word by mouth. It's not a document. It's not literature. To give the good news, to give the gospel, is to communicate it by word of mouth, to talk with another person, to preach the gospel. Paul writes in Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. See, the gospel is of first importance. And turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15 real quick. We're going to turn to a couple, just a couple of passages during the sermon, but these are ones I want you to really take note of, so mark this down. Um, you may recall if you were at VBS on, on um, Friday night a week ago that Ron, when he gave his, his five-minute message, went to 1 Corinthians 15. Because this is a key passage when it comes to giving the gospel. So let me read 1 Corinthians 1, and we're going to read through 1 through 4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There is a concise description of the gospel right there. It talks about Christ's death and his resurrection for our sins according to the scriptures. This is what Paul continually preached. He preached this very message over and over again wherever he went. Jesus preached the complete gospel. After his resurrection, he told his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. This is our hope. This is the gospel. And so I ask you, is the gospel your hope? Is the gospel your defense? If not, what is? You see, everything pales compared to the gospel. Now the next point is, why shall we make a defense of our hope in Christ? Why shall we make a defense of our hope in Christ? Now there are several becauses that go with this question. The first because is because God has commanded us to do so. Now we obviously see it in 1 Peter 3.15, that's the command in 1 Peter 3.15. But recall the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And while God has commanded us to spread the gospel, to share the gospel to all the nations, he's also decreed that it is to be done by word of mouth. Remember the word euangelion always refers to word of mouth. We are to communicate it personally. And we do this a number of ways. One of those is by preaching. We preach the gospel. We preach the gospel here at Grace Bible Church. Paul writes, but how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. It is a call to preach. And at the Last Supper, Jesus prayed not only for the disciples, but also for those who would believe in him through their word. Now think about that for a minute. For those who will believe in him through their word. He's praying for us. We heard the good news. Someone communicated the gospel to us, and we believed. Jesus was praying for us, brothers and sisters, on the night of the Last Supper. And there are lots of examples for us to follow in the Bible about preaching the good news, about word-of-mouth communication. In Acts 6, we read of Stephen's defense. And it says that some men rose up, and they disputed with Stephen, who was doing great signs and wonders among the people. You recall Stephen, he was one of the, the first deacons that were appointed. And Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he was doing more than just a, than deacon work. He was actually doing things that were drawing attention to Christ. And as he was speaking and talking about this, there were men there who were unable to withstand and understand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They were having trouble with all this. So what did they do? They instigated the leveling of false charges against him. Do we not see that today? People attack the messenger instead of the message. So they started attacking the messenger. And this set the stage for Stephen's defense, which he gives in Acts 7. And that's a very long chapter in there, which resulted in the end with Stephen being stoned, but not before he gave a concise history of the nation of Israel and of Jesus Christ. We know of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that story, where Philip is in the desert, he sees the Ethiopian eunuch who is reading, and he's reading in Isaiah, he doesn't understand it. So Philip goes up into the chariot with him and explains what it means. We know of Peter and Cornelius. Peter was called to the house of Cornelius. Now Cornelius was a Gentile, and before that time, Jews did not go into the houses of Gentiles. They were considered unclean. But Peter had a vision from God, and Peter went to go see Cornelius, and through giving the gospel by word of mouth, Cornelius and his family were saved. And who can forget Paul and Silas and the Philippian jailer? You remember that account 
where Paul and Silas are imprisoned, there was a large earthquake. The cell doors fly open. The jailer, who's wakened by the earthquake, figures the prisoners have all escaped and he's about to kill himself. But the prisoners all stayed behind. And Paul says, don't, don't do that. Don't hurt yourself. We're all here. And in trembling and in fear and in great humility, the jailer dropped down to his knees and said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas told him, word of mouth. The gospel is spread by word of mouth. And it should be spread by my word of mouth and it should be spread by your word of mouth. This is what we're called to do. But another reason for why we give our defense is because we love Christ. Think about when you fell in love with your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Think about your children that you love. Think about your parents. When you have an intense love like that, you talk to others about him or her. If anyone asks a question, you're more than happy to answer it. Grandparents especially. See my, my grandbaby pictures? You laugh. My grandchild's going to be born in a month. And you will see pictures. You're not ashamed, but you're excited. You want to tell people about this. Another reason we, share the, we give our defense of the gospel is because we love others. You recall what the second greatest commandment is? Love your neighbor as yourself. Now consider this. If someone comes to you and they're experiencing back pain or knee pain or sore feet or some other malady, you offer to help, do you not? You might recommend a pain reliever, Advil or Tylenol. You might recommend a treatment. We all know what RICE stands for, rest, ice, compression, elevation. You might recommend that to someone who's suffering from some kind of joint pain. You might recommend a physician, try my doctor, or try my wife's doctor, or try my friend's doctor. If someone came to you depressed, you might recommend exercise. You might recommend a vacation. You might recommend a change in routine. And likewise, we give advice on all kinds of things, like finances, about career choices, and even about relationships. People come to us and ask about how they should deal with a, a friend or a relative that they're having a difficulty with. And you do this because you care and you want to help. If someone's hurting, you want to help them heal. If someone is suffering, maybe you just want to help them endure the suffering while they heal or while things get better until it passes. You give them advice for their careers and their finances because you want them to be successful. You want them to prosper. Well, if we care enough about someone to give them medical advice or financial or career or relationship advice, why would we not point them to the one who loves them infinitely more than you could possibly love them? He died for them as he died for you. He is the great healer. He is the wise counselor. He gives the power to endure. He changes lives. He gives new hope. He gives freedom from sin and guilt. He gives eternal life. He brings joy and peace. So if you love someone, why would you withhold giving them the best that you can give them? Instead of worldly advice and worldly wisdom, give them Jesus. Give them a defense 
for a reason, for the hope that is in you. You see, to give or refuse to give a defense or fail to give a full account is to deny the person who asks. You deny the person the changed life that comes from this freedom from sin, this freedom from guilt. You're denying them a new joy. You're denying them a peace. You're denying them a new hope. To refuse to give a defense or to fail to give a full account is to deny the person who asks the life-saving message of the gospel. I ask you, do you want that on your conscience? You could have given someone the gospel, the message for eternal life. By denying them this, how is this displaying an attitude of love? And think about that, especially when it comes to a family member or it comes to a friend. The best you can give them is Jesus Christ. But you see, to refuse to give a defense is also to deny Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 10, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now this doesn't necessarily mean that you're declaring you're not a Christian. It can mean that. But it can also be demonstrated by your actions of silence and refusing to witness, to give your testimony. Now I'm not saying you're going to lose your salvation. Even Peter denied Jesus. But you must ask yourself how willing you are to stand up and be counted when asked so deliberately, even if the point is to cause you to suffer. If someone boldly asks you to give a defense for a reason for the hope that is in you, how can you deny doing so? We give a defense for a reason for the hope that is in us to give hope to others. Paul told the Ephesians at one time, they like us were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants and promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And the psalmist says, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. So I ask you this morning, do you love Christ? Do you love others? Do you want to help or do you want to share your hope and your joy with those who are suffering? Christ died for you. Are you willing to stand up for him? And are you spreading the gospel by word of mouth? Well, the next point, point three is, to whom shall we make our defense? To whom shall we make our defense? Now, we've already looked at the who in terms of the persons to whom we are making the defense of the gospel. We look again at verse 15. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks. Now, the New American Standard uh, Bible and the New International Version say everyone who asks. The ESV says anyone who asks. Everyone is a better um, translation, perhaps, because the word in Greek means Everyone. We are to be prepared to answer anyone and everyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in us. Not just some people. All people. That means your relatives. That means your friends. That means your co-workers. And that means strangers. Someone who doesn't even know you asks you on an airplane, in the mall. 
You don't know who God has sent to ask you for a reason for the hope that is in you. For all you know, a person might have been prompted by God to seek you out and ask that very question of you at that very moment. See, Romans 3.11 says, there is none who seeks for God. Philippians 2.1 tells us people seek their own interests. In John 6.44, we read that it is God alone who causes man to seek him. Jesus said that whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. So again, you don't know if a person has not been prompted, the Spirit has not pushed that person to go ask you directly for a reason for the hope that is in you. And even if a person is not honestly seeking an answer, because there are those out there as well, perhaps they're hostile, they're looking to corner you, they're looking to make fun of you, they're looking to deride you, looking for an opportunity to make a charge against you, to humiliate you, perhaps in front of friends or perhaps in front of coworkers. Some of you have had this experience where you're called out in front of a group, tried to make like a buffoon. Well, nonetheless, give them a reason for the hope that is in you. Paul gave his defense of the gospel before King Agrippa. King Agrippa was not looking for information about Christ. He didn't have a humble heart. Rather, he was deciding on whether or not Paul had committed an offense. And nonetheless, Paul gave his defense. Now, we are to give a defense for our hope in Christ to each other. Not only to people who don't know Jesus, but to people within the church. Let me say that again. We are to give a defense for our hope in Christ to each other. Three times in 1 Thessalonians, Paul tells us to encourage one another. And in Hebrews we read, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are to share our hope with this other, each other. We are to build each other up, to encourage each other, to preach Christ among the congregation. The gospel is our hope. And not only do we preach the gospel to ourselves, we preach it to each other in Acts 20. This is an example of the gospel being preached to believers, not only within the church, but to other believers. So I ask you, to whom are you called to make a defense for the reason for the hope that is in you? Are you called to make a defense to a friend, to a relative, to a coworker, to a stranger? You're certainly called to make a defense to each other. The fourth point, 
I've combined the when and the where. When and where shall our defense be given? When and where shall our defense be given? Well, this goes right along with the who question. See, the verse does not tell us things like immediately or right away. But neither does it say to wait a while. It certainly doesn't say make an appointment for a more opportune time. But there's other scriptures that give us an idea of the timing and importance of the present when it comes to telling people about Christ. Deuteronomy 6-7 tells us that when it comes to God's commandments, we are to talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. That's pretty much all the time. Paul told Timothy to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. This means when it is both convenient and inconvenient. And who knows but that this is the last time a person may be alive to hear the gospel. We don't know what God has decreed for anyone around us. And so if we don't take the opportunity, we could be passing this up. God calls us to give our defense at the time. Now likewise, we're not told where we shall give our defense. But if doing so in the present is indicated, then where we give a defense for the reason and for our hope will not matter. Because wherever we are, it's now. And this means you must be prepared to give a defense for the reason for your hope at work. You might be approached at work. Be prepared. You might be at the gym. You might be on the treadmill, pushing some iron. Be prepared. You might be at the park with your dog or your kids or with your family. Be prepared. You might be at a party. And you might be at that great meeting place where everyone runs into everybody else. Target. <laughs> or maybe Safeway. You know, Hollister has about 37,000 people, but it's amazing. How many of you go out and the chances of running into someone you know are pretty good. Um, we were out shopping last night. We ran into people we know. It just happens. It's where we run into other people. Be prepared. Or anywhere else. Anywhere else God places you, be prepared. Whether that's on an airplane or whether you stopped at a gas station driving to Southern California, it doesn't matter. We give our defense when and where we are called to do so. So I ask you, are you prepared to give a defense for the reason for your hope whenever and wherever you're asked? And if not, why not? What's keeping you? Well, the fifth point is, how shall we make our defense? How shall we make our defense? Now, this is where rubber meets the road. We're actually going to make our defense. It's good to be prepared to understand the what, the why, the who, the when, and the where. But when it comes to the doing, we ask, how do I say it? How do I give the gospel? So first, let's look at how to make a defense for a reason for the hope that is in you. 
If you listen to some of the modern apologists, you would start with some type of philosophical underpinning. Perhaps rationalism. You would look at probability. Natural theology. Something called pre-evangelism. And all kinds of other things that are out there. I remember last week when I described the pagans of Peter's day and as well as society today, people consider Christians to be irrational. We don't think, we don't reason. We believe in fairy tales. Too many times Christians fall for this argument. And so they attempt to witness using philosophical arguments. Aristotelian philosophy. Paul didn't fall for such things. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to start with verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... It is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then turn over to chapter 2 in 1 Corinthians. And verse 1 says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." Paul did not try to win people to Christ with clever arguments. In fact, he disdained the philosophies and the so-called rational thinking. In Colossians 2.8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, many traditional apologists start with trying to prove that God probably exists. Probably? Aren't they sure? They try to reason God's likely existence without using scripture. In fact, some say you don't even need the Bible to believe. There's a school of thought called natural theology or natural religion. They too hold to the thought that we don't need the Bible to learn about Christ. They say salvation can be discerned merely by looking at nature around us. Now this is not to be confused with natural revelation. 
Natural revelation is taught in Romans 1, 18 through 23. You're all familiar with that passage. That God exists is plain to man because God has shown his eternal attributes, his power and his divine nature in creation. But sinful man suppresses this knowledge. He's futile in his thinking and his foolish heart is darkened. Atheists know that there's a God, but they deny it. But they know there's a God. It's evident around them. But their hearts are darkened. And this is because of their own sin. Sin has darkened their hearts. This is because of a blindness brought by Satan. He blinds people of the world to the truth. But even natural revelation doesn't save. Man cannot be saved apart from special or divine revelation. He can't look at a tree and discern the gospel. It has to be revealed to him by God. And for this, we have God's word. We have the Bible. God tells us. Continue on in, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians. In verse 6, it says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, we are doomed, who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom but taught by the spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. There are some that maintain before you can give the gospel, you have to engage in what's called pre-evangelism. You must use logic and reasoning to prepare a person's heart so that he'll be ready to hear the gospel. Jesus didn't pre-evangelize. He made bold proclamations, such as the one in Mark 1. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. No pre-evangelism. No logic, no trying to prove the existence of God, maybe. And if all this weren't enough, there's even one traditional apologist who claims that saving faith can be awakened in a child merely by reading the Chronicles of Narnia. Now, I'm not condemning the Chronicles of Narnia. It's actually a pretty good book. And the movie was really cool. But it's not scripture. And it doesn't give the gospel. Now, enough on the negative side. To make a defense for the reason, or for the hope that is in us, we turn to scripture. See, the prophets relied on the word of God. If you look through many of the Old Testament books, the Old Testament prophets, see how many times you find them saying, this is what the Lord says, or this is the word of God, this is what God declares. Jesus often said, it is written. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, spoke to the crowd using scripture. And we've already considered Stephen in Acts 7, who gave an account based on scripture. Philip, when speaking with the Ethiopian eunuch, opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, which is Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, he told him the good news about Jesus. 
See, we see that Paul has not relied on human reason to share the gospel. But it doesn't mean he didn't reason. In Acts 17.2, we read that Paul, when in Thessalonica, reasoned from the scriptures. He often made arguments declaring who God is. Check out Acts 14, when Paul and Barnabas were in Lystra. Check out Acts 17, when Paul was in Athens. He used scripture. He didn't use philosophies. When we try to resort to human logic, human wisdom, and not the wisdom and word of God, we are settling for less. And we're settling for much less. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You hold in your hand the powerful word of the living God. You have it right in your hand. The word of the creator God, the sovereign God, the omnipotent God, the eternal God. Well, brothers and sisters, use it. Study it. Learn it. Apply it. Isaiah 48 tells us the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. And in Isaiah God says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now whether that word is meant to convict or to convert, God's word is effective. Whether it's meant to convict or to convert, it is effective. Now I did mention last week a particularly effective means of giving a defense for a reason for the hope that is in you. Anybody remember what that was? Paul used it effectively. It's your own testimony. We read in Acts 9 the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, a man who hated Christians. A man who approved of their execution, who sought to bring them to Jerusalem for trial. A man who later considered himself the foremost of sinners. But this Saul, whose Greek name is Paul, gave his testimony before the people in Jerusalem in Acts 22. And again in Acts 26 before Agrippa. Both times he was making a defense. His testimony was his defense. Your testimony is powerful evidence of the work that Christ has done and is doing in your life. Whether it's healed relationships, whether it's freedom from an addiction such as alcohol or drugs or gambling or pornography, release from guilt and anxiety. It's powerful evidence that Christ has saved you from your sins. He promised you reconciliation with God and eternal life. The work of Christ is what gives you hope. So share your testimony and then share the gospel. Now, to share the gospel, you have to know the gospel. You explain to the person that we are all sinners and we would not seek God on our own. This is from Romans 3. That our sin merits the death penalty from, Galatia, or from Romans 6 that we cannot earn our own salvation from Galatians 2, that we cannot work our way to heaven, 
from Ephesians 2, and that we are helpless in Hebrews 9. Tell them that Christ, who is God, who is the creator and Lord of all, who became a man, who was pure and sinless, who became the sacrifice for our sin, who died on the cross, who was buried, and who rose again. This Jesus Christ reconciles us to God. And then urge them to repent. Urge them to follow Jesus. Urge them to believe on him as Lord and Savior. And to trust in him alone for salvation. Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ alone. And then trust in the work of the Holy Spirit. See, we do not save people. You don't save them, I don't save them. This is the sole province of God. You might plant a seed, another might water it, but it is God who gives the growth. It is God who saves. What is your testimony? Have you shared it with anyone? If not, what's keeping you from doing so? If you want a great example of testimony, I'm gonna put him on the spot again this week. Go talk to our brother Felix. He'll be glad to share his testimony with you. He did it when he was baptized. Powerful evidence of Christ's work in his heart and in the hearts of his family. God calls us to be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in us. And you will be asked. You will face this question. Not a matter of if, just a matter of when. As we look at what's going on around us in the world and you're asked for your opinion. Now, you can either deny Christ or you can give a reason for the hope that is in you. So to that end, I beg you not to find yourself in a state of unreadiness. Prepare now for the person God would send you who asks you for your defense. Study your Bible. Preach the gospel to yourself. Memorize scripture. Meditate on what you've learned. Share with others. I'm gonna do something I've never done before. I'm gonna give you a charge. I charge you sometime this week to seek out another brother or sister in Christ, someone you know. Ask that person if he considers himself a Christian and ask him for a reason for the hope that is in him. Be prepared to answer the question yourself. Do this if you run into another brother or sister at the store. Do it at your community group. Call someone on the phone if you haven't run into anybody by the end of the week. Let us challenge one another now so that we'll be prepared to respond. Preach the gospel to each other to prepare to preach the gospel to others. See, God is bringing a huge mission field to Hollister. There are some 1,500 homes that are going up on the east side of town. Let's not squander this opportunity. Let's not squander our, the chance to share Christ with our new neighbors. Now perhaps you're not saved. Or you're unsure of your salvation. Perhaps today you're struggling with an addiction. 
or a broken relationship or guilt or anxieties. Perhaps you're not even assured of your eternity. You see, without Christ, you face a certain eternal death, a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, and it's the death we all deserve. If that's the case, come talk to Pastor Ron, talk to Pastor Ted, talk to Darren, talk to me, talk to Felix, talk to Lloyd, talk to Gary, talk to many of the men that are here. We'd love to give you a reason for the hope that is in us. And we would love for you to have the same hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have equipped us to share Jesus Christ. And indeed, we are called to do so. Father, I pray for each and every one here that you will put it upon our hearts and our minds to study, to practice, to train. Father, to prepare, to be prepared, to give a defense for a reason for the hope that is in us. And Father, may you use that mightily to bring people to you, to reconcile people to you. Father, we are here to serve you. We are here to share the joy of Jesus Christ. In his hidden name we pray, amen.